HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by craftbeer.com, dedicated to small and independent U.S. craft brewers. For more information, visit craftbeer.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. In the Drink is the show that brings you the most interesting people and most delicious drinks in the world of beverage. And I'm really excited for today's show. We have in the studio, all the way from Austria, uh, Alex Rayner, who is the head distiller and uh, co-owner of the Rochelle Distillery in Austria. And they make some of the most highly regarded brandies, fruit brandies in the entire world. Um, Alex actually took over the uh, distillery from his father-in-law, and now it's a family business. Uh, he makes the, the his range of fruit distillates with uh, his wife and her sisters and maybe more of the family that I don't know about. And their selection process for choosing the ripest, finest fruit is, I think, pretty unparalleled. These are really unique, really beautiful uh, distillates. And uh, I'm really excited to learn more about it. Welcome to welcome to Bushwick. Welcome to In the Drink, Alex. Good to have you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Great to see you, Joe. So I, I want to start off with asking you about why you decide to call um, your your distillates fruit brandies uh, as opposed to eau de vie or, or schnapps. Um, uh, we were talking a little bit before the show about what maybe your impression of the American uh, word for for schnapps is, is all about. Uh, I think in general, uh, when we thought about an English expression for the product we are doing, we uh, we found that it's actually a very small or non-existing market uh, in the U.S. or even in England. And uh, so there was no obvious term of how to call it. And then when we were saying, well, let's call it schnapps, what we call it originally in German, um, we came across a, a different product, which uh, originally was... Uh, 
you know, sugared, flavored, colored, and everything we don't stand for. And so we're saying, well, we, we, we can't really call it schnapps at that point of time. Um, let's try to find something which uh, comes closer to the original. So there is a German expression which is called Brandwein. So it's like distilled or like burned wine mm -hmm. in a way. And so brandy comes closer to that word. So I like the word, let's call it brandy, but then brandy is something different again um, uh, because it's, you know, it's like matured in oak and all this and we have a clear spirit. And then we say, well, listen, actually we make brandy out of fruit. Why don't we call it fruit brandy? And uh, and here we go. So it's a Rochel fruit brandy. And but that makes a lot of sense to me. But what do you call it in uh, in Austria? Do you refer to it as schnapps? On the in bottom? Austria, it's called schnapps. Yeah, okay. It's still really the traditional term is schnapps, although these days... Uh, They come up with um, more marketing-driven terms as well, mm -hmm. um, but in, it is it is a schnapps, and we call ourselves also a Tyrolean uh, distillery. In German, would be Schnapsbrennerei. So we also use that traditional term um, because a lot of our thinking, the way we th uh, think, and the way we work, goes back a long way. Uh, our roots are in the traditional distilling. Um, of the uh, orchid farmers uh, in Tyrol, and that goes back a couple of uh, centuries ago. And this is really where the, the schnapps tradition was born, and we want to call it that way. And, you know, I was doing some research before this and trying to find a definition for schnapps. Is there something that defines schnapps other than a fruit-based distillate? I mean, the, the kind of purity that, that you work with, you make a big effort to, to not use any additives whatsoever. Um, uh, can you have any clear definition of what a schnapps is? Well... Yes and no. There's a law, and when you read the law, then uh, you ha it's, it states very clearly what Schnapps stands for. Um, but um, for us, it's not that was never uh, good enough. So we uh, we were rather than trying to interpret the the law, we were saying what uh, what we understand what a good Schnapps stands for. And again, here we were going back in history and time and trying really to to dig out the old ideas of making a good schnapps or fruit brandy and uh, with all the ingredients it takes to uh, to make it a good distillate mm -hmm. um i you know I, i work a lot with italian wine and i know the alto adige is called the sud tyrol is there mm -hmm. is like the nord tyrol is there the northern tyrol is that the area that you're that you're from that you're yes, right I, on the border of, of italy right that's that's say. right it takes yeah. me about 20 minutes by car mm -hmm. to go to italy And um, uh, and the Alto Adige, as you mentioned, uh, well, that goes back in history now where it all was one Tyrol before the First World War. And after the war, they all split it up in three different Tyrols, the East Tyrol, the North Tyrol and the Southern Tyrol. And you were referring to Alto Adige, the, the, the southern part that became part of um, um, Italy. Yeah. So I imagine it must have been a pretty <clears throat> prosperous area if you're able to use this amount of fruit, right? If you're saying the history of it was to have like a really high quality fruit distillate that was all natural, um, to, to use all of that fruit to, to not to eat, but in order to make into a, an alcoholic product. Yes, that's right. Well, it all started uh, not with a high quality product, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, it was giving the farmers the choice of using all the harvest, And obviously, you know, the best bits, you know, they were harvesting and trying to sell uh, for consumption other bits. Then, you know, they're making juice or compote or, you know, for some uh, kind of fruit like apricot, making jam and all this. 
And then there were the leftovers, really, you know, the things that were not so pretty any longer and not so great. And, uh, and back in the, uh, you know, 16th and 17th century, um, uh, they were, it was a good source of producing alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so they were using the, the sugars that are still, uh, you know, uh, in the fruit and fermenting them and then distilling. And back then it was uh, of um, doubtful quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but as always, um, you find uh, these kinds of uh, producers and other kinds. And there were, there were people ba- even back then who were producing and were saying, well, um, if you take mediocre fruit the best you can get is a mediocre schnapps. So if I want to sell it or give it to friends, you know, I maybe do the mediocre stuff. But if for the stuff I want to drink or want to share with my good friends, um, um, I kind of, you know, use the better fruit on some of them using the best fruit. And then they know that, well, actually, the better the fruit, the better the outcome. And so uh, you really benefit from, uh, from that kind of thinking. And this is where um, the tradition was born where we say uh, we have a Tyrolean tradition of making schnapps. Mm-hmm. And that was not the 20th century, you know, where it all became quantity and uh, where it all became commercialized. And uh, that was rather the time where the quality went down. Um, uh, but it's really the old tradition of making good brandies, yeah. Yeah. So we know that that the American idea of schnapps has really nothing to do with this whatsoever. We have so many additives and sweeteners and low alcohol. But um, if you're going to make schnapps in Austria, are there some things that people that people are allowed to add that you just choose that you choose not to? Yeah, it's really. Uh, you can really do whatever you want. It's really loose, huh? Um, it's very, it's a very loose interpretation. Um, you just, you it then you have to make a certain wording that you put on the bottle, so on the on the label. But for most consumers, that's quite misleading. You know, uh, is it a spirit? Is it a distillate? You know, is it a, like a schnapps, or we call it like a. Uh, uh, an Edelbrand, so it's like a very, very good form of schnapps. But like for the customer, it's very difficult. You know, is it made out of fruit? Is it made out of ethanol and flavors? Is it made of like parts of ethanol or parts? And then you can add sugar in the process before fermentation or after that. So it's there's. A, I read once in an, in, a, in a magazine that uh, today a modern you know, a modern, uh, in parenthesis, uh, um, uh, distiller, he should add as many things as possible to the mash because you don't want to be passive and looking at what the fermentation brings. You know, you should have to be proactive and add many things and all. But this is really about diluting the whole exercise mm-hmm. uh, rather than concentrating what really matters. And uh, and I think this is what uh, where we differentiate um, the most is the raw material that we are looking at. Yeah, you, I think you almost take a winemaker's or even like a low interventionist or no interventionist winemaker's view to uh, to making your product. In my mind, when I was reading about it, like just the, the care of the selection of just the, the best, ripest fruit, um, the aging process of it, and mm-hmm. your your desire to like really showcase what that what that fruit uh, can give you. Um, let's talk about the, the fruit selection process because you're not go- doing the, you know, or mediocre fruit, right? I see the pictures of the fruit that you use, and it's like the most pristine, perfect. It looks like it could be in a, a, a Japanese market in Tokyo in like a gift box and could be presented to a friend, you know, mm-hmm. for an anniversary or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Now, you would never find that kind of fruit on the Japanese market <laughs> because it grows in an orchid. It's harvested there and most of the times it's even processed there. So it's, there's no room even for um, you know, logistics to take the fruit somewhere else in order to sell it on the market or something. No, but I just but, mean, um, I don't know if you've, know, ever, if you've ever been yeah, yeah. to Tokyo where they, they like idolize a perfectly grown piece of fruit uh, and that, that same sort of idea, it seems like I know. what you're working with exactly, is yes, really yes. high quality stuff. It is uh, historically with in our family and company, um, the co comparison you do you make with the winemakers is a very good comparison mm -hmm. because we are all um, very much wine lovers as well and wine collectors. And our examples uh, that we were always looking at were the small winemakers of Burgundy or the Piemont that were really trying to make something special out of their small, you know, uh, uh, wine. Uh, uh, wine garden and um, uh, and vineyard, but vineyard, wine, vineyard. But, sorry, but yeah. wine garden is yeah, great. yeah, I got yeah, it. <laughs> the vineyard and uh, and really concentrating on the fruit and keeping it all natural and uh, and uh, for us, this is really a kind of thinking that we uh, we put into uh, effect also with uh, with the schnapps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can you just take us through quickly the production process for for those of us who don't know exactly how it's made? Well, basically, it's, it's a very simple process. Um, but then with simplicity, the things become always more complicated, as always. But in general, we just take fruit and, uh, and we turn it through uh, two or three different steps. We turn it into alcohol, which at the end is still 100% the fruit. So we don't add anything during the process or even at the end. Yeah, mm -hmm. leaving water aside, well, we can talk about the water uh, business uh, uh, later on, and um, uh, and so this is uh, something when you drink it, then this is something really that you have to keep in mind that this is a one hundred percent pure fruit distillate, and so when you have apricot uh, fruit brandy or schnapps, then when you drink it, all you drink is pure apricot, mm -hmm. and this is something I think very beautiful. Um, because uh, the process of fermentation and distilling allows you to, to switch or turn the fruit into something completely different while still remaining 100% fruit. And you're not even adding uh, yeast, are you? No. This is the real natural yeast from, from the orchards. Absolutely, yes. I think yeah, for me, that's, that's really important for, uh, for, for having the true flavor. I think my, my favorite wines are all made with uh, ambient yeast as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, when we start at the beginning, it's um, because that's what you talk about is then the fermentation already. But the homework that we need to do is um, right in the org head. Mm -hmm. um, this is where it starts. And I would say of all our efforts, 80% um, go into um, finding the right fruit and where it's grown, finding the right partners, and then convincing him that he should harvest it the way we want it to. So I'll give you an example. Um, there are many kinds of apples. And, uh, and uh, over the period of 20 to 30 years, when my father-in-law was a pure hobby distiller, never thinking about uh, founding his own distillery, um, he tried so many things. And, and and even today, we still do. We always check, you know, are these the right, the right varieties? But at some point, we discovered that the Grafenstein apple variety is just the nicest mix of flavors. 
um, that can be transformed into a distillate because most of the apple uh, fruit brandies, they have hardly any apple taste mm -hmm. um, because the flavors are so fragile, they don't really go into the, the distillate. So finding the right variety, okay, so we have found the Grafenstein, but then we ask ourselves, so where is it grown? So many people think that um, it doesn't really matter where the apple is grown. Apple is apple. But then when we compare it again to the uh, vineyards, we know that yeah, the nicest Pinot Noirs are grown in Burgundy. Yeah? Uh, in Piemont is the Nebbiolo, you know, the Barolo wines. And uh, and uh, I know you go to Spain and uh, you find uh, particular areas for particular grapes. And what, what matters for grapes matters obviously for other kinds of fruits. And we found out that um, for the apple, for instance, it is the south uh, southern areas of Styria, which is one area in Austria, have the perfect uh, microclimate conditions that we need for that apple. French would call it terrain, uh, which all brings together. So we found this. And then you need to find a partner that is actually willing to work with you. And when we tell them what we want... To be honest, eight out of ten just run away. Mm. Because they say, like, this is like so old school, and the effort you're asking for is just so high, even, um, uh, even if you don't, you know, even if we can choose the price, what we usually do, we ask the farmer, how much do you want for, for your work? They just have a diff very different thinking, which is they say what they would call it like, we are too modern to be so old fashioned. And, uh, but we want, for instance, for the apple, we say, um, we would like to that you that you grow it as naturally as possible. And we want you to start harvesting only when the fruit is ripe. So they, all the farmers say, well, obviously, you know, we harvest when it's ripe. But when you go, just go there, when they start the harvest, and I always am at, at the harvests, um, they start picking when the apples are green. And I was saying, no, no, this is not ripe. I mean, ripe that when you eat it, that has its full potential of flavor. So when you really like, it's it's so juicy and it's so flavorful, you enjoy yeah. eating it. One more day, it would be too, it would be overripe. But today, it's the perfect day. Almost, exactly. Right? And that, that is exactly, it's a good point that you mentioned this because that means if you, if you put that into real life, um, that means that you cannot harvest the apples all in one or two goes. No. Yeah. You have to basically go through your orchard 10 to 15 times over a period of three to four weeks. And at some, day, time, some days, you only uh, select, I don't know, 500 kilograms, yeah? And, and then there is more sun and the, the, the uh, ripening is better than you can collect maybe two tons on a day. Mm -hmm. But the, it is really the fruit that decides when it's going to be harvested and not, not the farmer because of logistics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might think of this as uh, silly, but it it is a uh, a, a fun activity for uh, uh, for some of us here to like go apple picking. Like that's like a nice thing. Let's go apple. But anyone who's ever done that knows that when you go apple picking, the one tree is not all uniformly ripe. So in yeah, it makes total sense that if someone is just going to go through pick it all at once, mm -hmm. then you'll have some underripe underripe fruit, yeah. okay yeah. fruit, good fruit, and perfect. Exactly. Yeah. And what leaves that when you when yeah. you do this, you always always end up just having mediocre average quality right because the best fruits gonna mix with the you know average and then the ones that are picked by the birds mm -hmm. or have fallen to mm -hmm. the ground and uh, and then you have to be very strict about it and so we we harvest and then we select by hand once more and uh, and and, uh, and only the fruits that we then still consider as being you know first class are then uh, processed 
And because when we talk about ripeness, and it's really as ripe as the pictures you mentioned, it's not professional pictures, I just take them whenever I'm at the harvests, um, most of the fruit cannot be transported any longer mm -hmm. because it's so ripe. Yeah? And, uh, and it should not also, it should not go into a warehouse or like, you know, or the big cooling facilities. It should be processed at once. So uh, most of the farmers um, we work with are small, um, you know, family-owned um, uh, orchids, and they just process um, the fruit at the day of harvest, at the point of harvest. So basically, he takes these apples, goes back to his farmhouse, and produces the mash. He puts the, he grinds them into a fine apple mash and puts them into large vats. Mm -hmm. And then he closes the vats, and that's it. And then the fermentation starts. We don't add anything, never. Not even, as you mentioned, yeast. It's the natural yeast on the skin of the fruit. So the apple in the Western Styria has the apple uh, yeast of this particular region. And this only is the one way forward. Mm -hmm. yeah? So the good thing is, once the fermentation has started, um, it is preserved. So whereas the, the individual apple would risk of, you know, turning, you know, being overripe and, uh, and, uh, and becoming, having negative effects after harvest, uh, once the fermentation process has started, it's all safe. And then we can ship them back to our distillery. And then you can distill it. Amazing. And then we need to ferment it and then distill it. And, and so, I, I mean, uh, the, going back to that comparison with a uh, winemaker, every great winemaker I know says that the majority of the work is in the vineyard. And then in the, in the winery, you're just trying to not mess up all the, all how special the vineyard is and how great the fruit is. And it sounds so similar to, to mm -hmm. that same, that same idea. Um, but on that note, we have to take just a quick break and we'll be back with more with Alex Rayner of Rochelle Distillery, most incredible fruit brandies, uh, right after the short break. Love craft beer, the diversity of styles and flavors, the stories of small brewery businesses and the communities behind today's craft beer movement? If so, you'll love craftbeer.com, published by the Brewers Association. Whether you tasted your first craft beer 30 years ago or just caught the bug last week, craftbeer.com is the number one destination for beer education, news, and recipes. Looking for a local brewery? Use the Internet's most robust brewery finder to discover your new favorite place. Want to get geeky about your favorite beer style or find the perfect pairing for dinner? Craftbeer.com is the leading authority and can help. Celebrate the best of American beer. Visit craftbeer.com today. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter.
broken heart, but poor at prose. Teach you to rhyme, but nobody grows. A slap in the mouth and a push off a and we're uh, we're back on in the drink I'm here with Alex Rayner. But before we get started, uh, I actually just want to read a little something to you guys. Uh, so we have a really exciting members only happy hour coming up. And uh, um, are you guys a, a Heritage Radio Network member yet? Uh, well, membership not only supports the production and broadcast of the show, but also comes with some perks. All current members are invited to our new monthly happy hour series, Books and Brews. Join us on April 12th at 3's Outpost at Franklin and Kent in Greenpoint with host of Eat Your Words, Kathy Irway, and her new book, The Food of Taiwan. Uh, meet other members, snag a copy of The Food of Taiwan, and enjoy some beer from HRN business member Threes. I love Threes and go all the time. Uh, donate at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to get your exclusive invite today. Uh, hope to see you there. Um, all right, I'm back with Alex Rayner of Rochelle uh, Distillery in uh, the Tyrolean area of Austria. And um, he makes incredible, highly regarded fruit brandies. And he was telling us about the fruit selection process before, uh, before the break. But um, you did hint on the history of the business. And I would like to, to talk about that a little bit as well. Um, it was your father-in-law who started, uh, who started distilling. And you said he started as a, a hobbyist uh, distiller. Um, can you tell us about... Uh, how it went from someone who's doing this as a hobby to now a highly regarded professional company that, you know, that supports your family. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back, uh, to the early 1970s. So around, um, 45 years now and, uh, Günther, uh, Günther Rochel. So that was, uh, this, the surname gives, uh, gives the, uh, the brand it's, it's, it's name. Um, he was originally a young chef. And um, uh, he was cooking in all different kinds of restaurants. But that was uh, his uh, school of thought. And um, and as a, also like a, a really traditional Tyrolean, he loved uh, the you know the the tradition of making good schnapps. Um, the problem in the seventies was there was no good schnapps around. It was far too commercialized. They're using flavors, sugars, and all the mistakes you know people do uh, when uh, when it becomes. A growing a mass market product and um, and as a chef he was just basically saying well listen if there's no good schnapps around I'm gonna start distilling and uh, he and his brother Dietmar went up the Tyrolean forest and collected little rowan berries it's little red berries very very traditional uh, schnapps in Tyrol and they collected, they collected these berries and started distilling and uh, and they liked the outcome and the two of them uh, continued distilling. And they went to their uh, family orchards and collecting apples. And from apple, it you know, got into pears and pears to apricots. And I think over the course of the next 20 years, more than 100 different varieties were distilled. And he became really passionate about it. And, um, and his thinking as a chef was obviously, you know, if you cook something, um, what matters? It's not the pan that you're using. It's not the oven you're using. It is the ingredient. It is the raw material. So his thinking of a chef was also then his secret to success later on to making a good uh, distillate because he was still 
focusing as ever uh, on the on the raw source in this case the fruit and uh, he was a quality fanatic sometimes it was difficult working with him but um, but the outcome was always good because he was so uh, stressed and so super keen on getting it right and he understood what mattered in distilling as i've already mentioned uh, several times it is the fruit that that, that matters so learning a lot about this mm-hmm. um, gave him the expertise that in 1989, when he decided um, when, at the age of 49, well, I, now I'm going to establish my own distillery. Um, uh, but it's always nice to you know, open a business with already 20 years experience in producing a product. That is very rare. And then something happened. He, he, he came out with a product of uh, very high quality and, um, and, uh, and surprised many people that um, such a high quality schnapps product can actually be made because people back then they were drinking cognac or nice whiskey or uh, all, all other kind of fancy drinks but not like Austrian schnapps and he basically taught them well listen if you can make a nice drink out of barley Why shouldn't you be able to do this of wild, you know, uh, forest wild raspberries or, you know, ripe pears? So there was no real justification in order not to. So he start, started building his business slowly and, we ne- and he never and we still never wanted to be big. Mm-hmm. We want to be successful in and differentiate ourselves through quality and never quantity. And this is a decision you have to make at some point. When you are successful, and uh, and we always and we came to that uh, particular point where we decided if we go for quantity, then we need to compromise, because we're not a software company where you can duplicate your product, you know, endlessly, and um, and we saw that um, when we say, for instance, uh, we like the apricots from two different varieties, and we only like them from the Wachau area. In uh, in Austria, uh, on the on the river banks of the Danube, and uh, and this quantity there is limited. Um, we cannot buy somewhere else, and this is a principle. We have our core partners that we're convinced. If we find new ones and are able to expand, but only in adding in quality, but never compromising, then we do. But for instance, if This apricot, we just had the blossom there last week, and it's always a very early blossom, and there's always the risk of frost. Yeah, I mean, reading through your website and seeing the question, you know, it, it, it reminds me of reading through a, a website of a, of a great winemaker. Again, like the the risk of frost and how how mm-hmm. in tune you are, even with the with the flower, the blossoming uh, stage. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what two things. What what has changed since those the since 1989, since the early days in in the company, and and two. Did you think that you were going to be so involved and you'd make this your life and career when you when you met his uh, his daughter? I would have hoped so yes. even back then, but you never you never know where life takes you. 
And back then I was a student and we were living in London and had completely different plans. But I, uh, but I always admired his attitude towards um, good quality and good quality products. And at a certain point, um, uh, when, we when we started thinking of whether we should stay in London or go back to Austria, then obviously, you know, the distillery as a family business came up, you know, what's, who is going to look after this? And, uh, and we decided we're going to do it for a year. Because I said, if something goes wrong, you know, and, you know, I like you as a father-in-law and you like me, but, you know, if we work together as professionals, maybe that's different. So we said one year and nobody is angry with each other if it doesn't work out. And it was, it ended up in seven years of a very close, uh, very father-like um, uh, cooperation. Oh. And uh, we worked together very, very well. As, um, unfortunately, he passed away in 2009, Sorry. too early. Yeah for us as a family but luckily uh, during that six to seven years i followed in his footsteps i was able to pick up the essentials and also the fine print of distilling and again there was more working in the orchids than uh, in the distillery actually mm -hmm. incredible mm -hmm. incredible and uh you've brought a few uh you brought a few for us to taste here i'm actually mm -hmm. been sipping on that the apple and it's amazing because I'm, I'm tasting it as you're, uh, as you're speaking. And sometimes I forget that it's apple because it's so complex. There's so many layers of flavor. And then the apple keeps coming back. I was like, Oh yeah, this is apple. And even after I've, uh, taking the sip and if it's been a minute since I've taken the sip and then I'll have another rush of apple come through my mouth. It's an incredibly complex mm -hmm. spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I imagine part of that comes from the, the aging process. It's a it's a combination of what you notice, a combination of many things. It's first of all the fruit. We discussed it in detail. Uh, and then it's like just leave it as natural as possible. So fermentation is all natural without any additives. So we turn the uh, natural fruit sugar into alcohol. So the production of the alcohol is done always in the fermentation process. We never add any alcohol or anything else. So once the fermentation is finished, and we distill. What you noticed when you drank it, um, it's strong. It is strong. It is quite strong in alcohol and strong and very long, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. in the flavors. So one minute, two minutes sometimes, if you feel very carefully, then you can taste the, uh, the, the finish is very long. And, and this is because it's strong. It's strong but not harsh. Yes, and that is where maturation comes in. Mm. So the distilling, you have basically to do everything right. Avoid all the mistakes so you get the right middle cut. Mm. In German, we call it Herzstück, so the heart piece. Uh, get all the flavors uh, into the heart piece, um, into the middle cut that you want to have there and cut out all the um, side effects of the alcohol. So the, the methanol and the other high and low spirits you don't want to have there. But and And we make a lot of effort to get these right obviously we don't want to have a distillery where we say like oh we had the greatest mash on earth but then we didn't pay enough attention in the distilling process so we end up with a middle cut which is like only 80 percent of the flavors of the fruit you know, great then how should i convince my farmers next year round that they make uh, an extra effort you know if they don't get it right but really what matters at the end of the pro pro production process is the maturation mm -hmm. so Uh, in the States, you are familiar with maturation because all the brandies and cognacs and uh, all like oak-aged uh, uh, distillates are aged for a very long period. But this is mostly because you want to have aging, but also you want to have um, flavors, additional flavors coming out of the barrel. 
Well, we don't, we don't do that. We only age in um, glass balloons. So that's why we actually should use the term rested so that we don't confuse it um, with, with barrels. So it's a clear spirit and it's very important. Why? The alcohol, um, and it's a, it's a nat natural thing, and the alcohol carries the flavors. Mm -hmm. And we put a lot of effort in putting the flavors from the fruit into the alcohol. So you have all the delicate, fruity flavors already there. And in the maturation process, it is about preserving and enhancing these flavors. And you don't want oak to overpower those flavors, no. right? And also, it's not to roll in tradition to, uh, to work with oak. So uh, we focus on clear and very fruity spirits. So it is strong. And we have, we call it 50%, which is, I think, 100 proof mm -hmm. minimum. And, and this is not because we distill differently. This is because we age. And we age a minimum of five years and up to 10, 12, 13 years. And during this process, the alcohol lessens. We have a huge angel share. So the, the, the stuff that just evaporates, the alcohol. And also over time, which is very important, the, uh, the alcohol and the uh, fruit flavors, they combine and balance to a harmonious unity. And this is why you can drink it stronger at a higher level of alcohol and that brings in stronger flavors because you don't dilute the, uh, the finished product so much. Uh, normal um, schnapps in Austria with 42% probably has 60% of water. But also like we have a very hard time when we have yeah. finished with the distilling. So we have a great fruit brandy there. And then we add 60% of water. No, that can be the end of the story. You so know? have you added any water to this whatsoever? Um, we, well, it really depends. Um, we have a range. We, we don't add water. We have some vintage where we don't have to add water. But I would say in general, we add, uh, depending on uh, the strength of the alcohol that we produce and the aging, so the, the amount of aging, um, around 5 to 15%. A tiny amount. And, yeah. the, and you can, I mean, this is, it's uh, 11.40 in the morning that we're, we're taping this. It's uh, my first drink of the day, and it's a 50% alcohol spirit, and I'm not, like, it, it doesn't feel harsh or strong at all in my in my throat. It's like a beautiful experience that, uh, you know, I could imagine... Drinking this at this time of day is not uh, jarring to me in the least, but it's lovely. And I, I would not have thought that if you were to say, you're going to taste a 50% alcohol you yeah. know, brandy. Yeah. You're going to California. try another one now. It's this Muscat grape. We were talking about the winemaker, so this is a, a good example. So this is um, the, uh, the, the vintage 2004, so it's more than 10 years, 12 years uh, wow. being aged. It is strong and fruity. And um, but it's not it does it should not harm you and that is that is why we age it yeah um, in the old in the old days of making schnapps um, the um, the distiller was not able to filter it so because usually what what happens in these days is you add so much water it becomes cloudy and misty and then you use sophisticated filtration methods in order to get it clear again. But the old, but the old farmers who were distilling, you know, 200 years ago, there was no filtration. So he actually was forced to let it at an, uh, leave it at a higher um, alcohol amount because adding too much water would make it, you know, cloudy. So it was too harsh to drink it young. He 
put it on the side and say, like, let's leave it for one or two years. Oh, after two years, it's better. Let's leave it longer and longer and uh, only adding very little water. So also, th also this is not a Rocheld invention. Mm -hmm. It is really going back to the old roots where the farmers just didn't have a choice. And um, uh, unless than just leaving it at the higher strengths and drinking it sip a sip. Also, when I watch you now drinking, you just you just cover a little bit your lips, and that's right. really it. So this is also why um, why recommend to drink it in very small portions and really enjoying it rather than like sipping it down all at once because it's it's you a lot of alcohol. You don't need it when you have something that's so complex and high quality you don't need a lot of it to be satisfied and that's true for this product but it's true for everything uh, i say it's like i rather enjoy one nice bottle of wine rather than three or four of you know average you know it's yeah. uh, this is beautiful so floral and it smells like the blossoms of a muscat grape as, a, as opposed yeah. to i mean so yeah. bright and fresh still yeah. as something that's that's yeah. this aged they come uh, from family shop they are called shop in Burgenland. So this is close to the Hungarian border, uh, which is uh, very well known for their, uh, their, their white, the white and red wines in Austria. Mm. And this is Muscat. It's Muscat Ottonel, it's called, the grape. Let's taste one more, and I have a, a question for you um, as well. I mean, you said that the American market is uh, maybe not so familiar with schnapps. I, uh, I can't imagine you're selling like a ton of these here in the States. You're with a great distributor with Nicola Palazzi, who's actually on the show uh, a few weeks ago. Um, he's someone who has extraordinary passion for, for high quality spirits and really knows the people and the story behind everything he does. And so it's not surprising to me that you're with someone of, of that, you know, of that caliber. Um, but where, where are you selling these? Is this mostly in Austria? How are they being uh, you know, received here in the States? We are a very small company, to be honest. Uh, we are like six people working there and we have an annual output of maybe 5,000 to maximum 9,000 liters. So mm -hmm. maybe like 10 to 15,000 bottles. So talking about uh, global reach or like the world famous, this is all overstated because, you know, 99% of the people don't know us. And uh, but that's not the point. We really wanna we wanna really reach out to the people that um, would like to enjoy uh, a very high quality product and appreciate it, and uh, wherever they are. So uh, it's a f funny story with Nicola. Actually, it was a, a restaurant in New York City who actually contacted me, and, uh, and Gabriel Kreuter um, wrote me an email once and saying, "Well, listen, you know, I was in Salzburg uh, cooking with uh, Chef Eckhard Witzigmann, and he gave me a bottle of your schnapps, and I liked it so much, and I'm a schnapps enthusiastic. Uh, I would like to uh, to offer it in my restaurant." And I was like saying, oh, "I can't do this. It's, you know, I'm too small. You know, with all these customs regulations." and all this you know i don't have a law department you know it's it's just not uh, not right but um but maybe you can suggest an, an you know a distributor from new york um who can handle all this uh for me and then nicola uh, he called me he came over last september and uh, and i was saying well i'm gonna i'm gonna repay um uh, the uh, the visit and come to new york uh, to see him as well and uh, and so this is how it started here it's really about uh, uh, restaurant chefs, sommeliers, private customers that, that would like to have a bottle or two that they are able, that when they contact us or through Nicola and basically say, well, you can buy it here, but it's not about um, 
covering, you know, the market of the U.S. or something, mm-hmm. we would not be able to do this. And this is your first capacity. trip to New York for representing the... Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Oh, it's only oh, it's only uh, I think Nicolas' first order was uh, last October, so it's really it's very small. And I and I told him already that uh, even if it goes all very well, we're still limited. I only can give him you know certain varieties. Um, we have a portfolio of altogether twenty. Mm-hmm. I think around ten or so uh, are available in general, uh, um, but we are now focusing on four or five, where I have um, some spare capacity in order to respond to uh to orders what is the one that you produce the most of and what is the most highly sought after that's always hard to to find it really it really uh changes a lot i give you an example in small years depends on the vintage Ah. the apricot (laughs) we uh we have from zero frost um to maybe 10 tons and uh, in a good year the same area can produce 100 tons of apricots so, uh, or the, ho- the overall output of our, of our distilleries, we can harvest uh, in bad years because of diversity um, of fruits between 80 and 90 tons, mm-hmm. and in very good years, around 200 to 250 tons. So it depends. Sometimes we produce more and sometimes we produce just very little. But I would say something like uh, the ones you tasted. One of my personal favorites is the apple, Muscat. And now you're trying the um, Morello cherry, so the sour cherry. And uh, it also is from uh, Styria. And also here again is three different varieties of cherries, and they're all picked by hand. So you don't sh- you call it shake it from the tree. Shake the tree, yeah. Yeah, we don't do that because for similar reasons than with the apple, we only want to have the ones that are perfect at that mm. particular day of harvest. So um, so we pick them all individually um, from the tree, sort it, and then process it on and on and on. But this is something really particular about it because like the individual uh, hand picking for a product like schnapps, nobody does it. Right. It's mm-hmm. truly, uh, it's truly incredible. I it's really vintage it. 2005, so also you have it. It's strong and balanced at the same time. Yes, I, w- I would say. Wow, uh, I think we've actually gone over a little bit on the show, but uh, this has been such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, good luck on your trip to New York. Um, I hope that the small production that you that you make, you're able to you know sell well with with Nikola here. Um, for anyone who is interested in high quality, low interventionist, handmade artisanal wine. These are these are that of uh, of uh, brandies. Um, they're just extraordinarily complex and delicious. And uh, congratulations! This is awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, I, I want to thank David Tadashore and the whole team from Heritage Radio Network for producing the show. And uh, this has been in the drink on Heritage Radio Network. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.